You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. Um, you know, nearly 25 years ago, Dean Baker founded the Center for Economic and Policy Research and in the years since has done an awful lot um, to, uh, to shine a light on, you know, strands of economic thinking that really are just efforts to prop up the already wealthy and powerful. Um, he's a prolific writer, author of many books and studies, and those of you who've listened before know he joins us from time to time to help make sense of the economy. Dean, welcome back. Thanks for having me in. How are you doing? Good. And, you know, it just occurred to me that you really are close to 25 years there. Yeah, it was 90, uh, what was it, 99, the end of very end of 99, so a bit less. going to have to find a way to we'll, celebrate. We'll have the quarter century coming up soon, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, since we last talked, you and I, Bidenomics has entered our vocabulary. Can you tell everybody, like, what it is and what it's meant to do for working Americans? Well, I really see it as two parts, and I, I think both are important. Uh, the first was that he had his very big recovery package that he came in right after he took office. So Congress passed it in February 221, and it really jump-started the economy back to full employment. And, you know, and I say this, two reasons. One, it was a big deal in terms of getting us back to full employment quickly. We got the unemployment rate under 4% early last year, which is very impressive. Um, and I compare that to the recovery from the Great Recession. It took us a, a decade to get under 4%. So, so that was very, very important. Um, but the other part that was that other reason for mentioning is he took a ton of heat for that. You know, there were any number of people, including some Democrats, Larry Summers, very prominent Democratic economist, saying this is crazy. It's going to cause so much inflation and it's a disaster. I won't go on at length about that, but he did. But the point was, he took a lot of heat. Biden took a lot of heat, and. It turned out we did have inflation, but so did everyone. So did Germany, so did France, even Japan had a, had a burst of inflation, and it's come down. So that turned out to be, to my view, a great call. We had the inflation for 221 into 222, and that wasn't good. No one liked it, but it came down. And, you know, I don't know anyone who would, if you just put it on the table, go, okay, we have two years of higher inflation or a year and a half of higher inflation than we want comes down and we get the economy back to full employment very quickly, is that a good deal? I think it's a great deal. But anyhow, but that that's part of it. But the other part was to, to shift to, to rebuild our industry to basically get us into the 21st century. So this was things like the CHIPS Act that uh, is about getting uh, increasing our production of semiconductors that we're, we're basically dependent on foreign producers, particularly uh, for the most advanced chips. And unfortunately, uh, nothing against Taiwan. But um, again, I'm not anxious to see us have a conflict with China. But uh, if we're in a conflict with China over Taiwan, probably not good that we're dependent on Taiwan for for silicon for semiconductors that we need for for much of our industry. So that was part of the story. Um, he also had his Infrastructure Act. This was something done bipartisan. He got Republicans to vote for it. And there were 66, 67 votes in the Senate. So he got a lot of Republicans on board with that. So modernizing our infrastructure, something that uh, Donald Trump had promised to do. We kept joking infrastructure week on how many infrastructure weeks we had. But we didn't get infrastructure. Biden, we got infrastructure. So, again, it was about getting us in the 21st century. And then the, the third, to my view, the most important part, the Inflation Reduction Act, 
that was about getting us to greening the economy, a green transition. We really had been lagging, and this was uh, subsidies for wind energy, solar energy, electric cars, and it's just been incredibly effective, I think more effective than just about anyone expected, certainly more effective than I expected, in terms of getting companies to, to go electric. We're hearing the auto companies, the future's electric. They're, they're all in, and they're going in on solar panels and wind energy, and we're seeing great developments in, in uh, battery storage. It's, it's really a very impressive story. So that, that's the Bidenomics. One, getting the economy quickly back to full employment. And two, redirecting our economy in a, in a direction that it has to be for the 21st century. Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. I, and, you know, the early returns on it, I mean, you, you mentioned inflation, and, and it's complicated because we had those supply chain uh, disruptions with the pandemic. So um, lots of causes there all around the world for inflation. But um, we've had a, a lot of success. I mean, the economy, I, I know the Wall Street Journal says every day we're heading for a recession. We can't possibly get out of inflation without causing a recession. But I, I think there's reason to be optimistic that this is being managed well. What do you think? So far, yes. You know, I, 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 I'm usually one who tends to be a pessimist, but you know, so far the story's very good. I mean, the unemployment rate's three six. It's near a half centrally low. That that's a great story. Um, we we've seen big wage gains for workers at the bottom of the wage distribution. Again, to my view, a fantastic story. Um, we had an all time low black unemployment rate a couple months ago. Now it's risen a bit at six percent, which is unfortunately for blacks that's a historic. That's a relatively low unemployment rate, but it had been down at four point six percent. I'd love to see us get back to that. But we've really seen, you know, a lot of very good results, and inflation's come down to 3%. Now, are we out of the woods? Well, we haven't felt the full effect of the Fed's rate hikes. We know we have some financial instability. I mean, with the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank and a couple others, so there's definitely some financial instability. And the Fed's not done hiking rates. There are virtually everyone expects them, including me, to hike rates uh, next week. They have a meeting Tuesday and Wednesday, and uh, I'll be surprised if they don't raise it a quarter point. Just about everyone expects that. And, you know, the impact of that, you know, that's still uncertain. So that, that's why I'm saying. I can't say we're out of the woods. We may see some bad stories, you know, the rest of this year, 224. But at the moment, things look very, very good. Yeah. Um, I worry about those rate hikes. I, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, profit taking, and I'm, I mean, I'm all for profits, but there's an awful lot of profits built into the uh, uh, economy right now, and um, uh, I worry. I worry that those rate hikes hurt the wrong people. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the. We could see those effects in a lot of different ways. So mortgage rates have gone through the roof. I mean, they're down around 3% back two years ago. I mean, it's because of the pandemic, obviously. We had weak demand, and, you know, the Fed was quite deliberately trying to encourage home buying to facilitate a lot of, about 15, about 17 million people refinance their mortgages, great things. But now you have uh, mortgage rates well over 6%. So clearly it makes it a lot harder to buy a home. No one's refinancing a mortgage at 6, 6.5% interest. So that's been shut down. Um, it does make it harder for, for companies to borrow. 
Um, people want to buy a new car, get a car loan, you know, so it definitely has an impact. So there's no doubt about it. Now, thus far, um, it hasn't produced a recession and there's not, there's no clear signals. There's nothing, the things we would ordinarily look to, you know, has, has construction fallen through the floor, um, residential construction, it's still pretty strong. Um, a lot of that, cause there was a big backlog built up in the pandemic with the supply chain issues, um, uh, non-residential construction has been soaring primarily because of the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. We're seeing huge building, huge boom in factory construction. So those are areas you would ordinarily expect to see a big impact. Carbine's doing good, but again, a lot of that's a backlog. So we, mm-hmm. we surely are seeing less demand in the economy than will otherwise be the case. Um, it's not... There, there's nothing suggesting that a recession is imminent. But again, if the Fed keeps hiking rates and we get out six months down the road, are we going to have a recession? Again, I, my bet would still be no, but I certainly wouldn't rule that out. Yeah. Well, let's change the subject a little bit. Something's happening here in the upper Midwest. Minnesota and Michigan have repealed their so-called right-to-work laws. Um, uh uh, both states are seeing incredibly big investments by the private sector, including massive new auto manufacturing investments in Michigan. Um, I, I, I think the rhetoric on the right that um, uh, having labor unions and having states that actually invest in their people um, is bad for business is being proven wrong up here in this part of the country uh, pretty astoundingly. And I wonder what you think about that. Well, we have a long history of this. I mean, to act like, you know, uh, businesses can't be profitable with if they have unions. I mean, I understand. I, I, I get it. Most companies would rather not have a union. You know? So if you went to um, companies that don't have a union, I, I was read Starbucks is going nuts. You know, uh, Howard Schultz is just like, you know, he, I won't go into it, but he's done all sorts of just really over-the-top things against workers that have supported unions at Starbucks. Um, so obviously he doesn't want a union. That's true of most companies that don't have them. Uh, companies that do have them, you say, would you rather have them or not? My guess is most of them would say they'd rather not, but many of them have worked for years and years and made good profits and grown. I mean, uh, I, I'm from the Midwest, like you, I'm from Chicago. Um, you know, you have the auto industry there that, you know, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, they did fine with unions. Now, again, they've had problems, but for the most part, you can't blame the unions. They made a lot of bad choices in, in, in uh, their, their production over the years, but, you know, they made a lot of profits too. So the idea that companies can't, be profitable with unions. Also, another thing worth pointing out, when, when the U.S. auto industry had problems, it, it, it was due to things we like... We bailed them out. Compete with. Yeah, we bailed them out, but I was also going to say, the companies that were beating them out were companies in Germany and Japan that, guess what? They had unions. And yeah. In fact, in Germany, they had much stronger unions than we had. Yep. So, uh, you know, companies have worked with unions and been, well, been dynamic, point. been profitable, you know, so so the idea that you have a union, companies going out of business, that that's ridiculous. Right. In the time the unions declined, I mean, I remember I wasn't in the federal government that long ago. It was during the Clinton years. And, and back then, I think, if I'm right about this, CEOs earned, I don't know, 40, maybe 50 times the average uh, uh, of uh, their workers. And it's you know, it's an order of magnitude bigger than that now. It's crazy, the gap, sort of the, the, the 
all the benefits of our economy flowing to smaller groups of people. Um, and where I think all that we've talked about about Bidenomics is an attempt to let more people benefit from the incredibly productive economy that we have. Yeah, and, and, and it really has done big, big steps in that direction. The, the numbers on a CEO pay, you, you have CEOs at the major companies now get three, two to 300 times what the pay of a typical worker gets. And if we go a little further back, because when you were in the Clinton administration, already it started to rise. You go back to the 70s, yep. 20 to 30 times. And, you know, just put some numbers here. It's not uncommon for CEOs to get 20, 30 million. There was someone, I think it was, uh, I won't name the company because I might have got it wrong, but they, someone just got 62 million. The CEO just got 62 million as his paycheck. Um, so if you go back to the old days, they'd have two to three million. And I mentioned this, it's not just the CEO, because I, I have a friend, he's going, okay, so we got 500 CEOs, you know, 500 CEOs of the Fortune 500 get too much money. Go, no, no, it's not just the CEO, because the CEO is getting 25 million, the chief financial officer is getting 10 or 12 million. They have two or three other, you know, people in the C-suite that are also getting, you know, 10 million, 12 million. And then the next echelon getting, you know, 2 million, 3 million. You can go to a bank like uh, JP Morgan, it wouldn't surprise me if you have 50, 60, 70 people who get well over a million dollars a year. If you just shifted it back, say that the CEO at JP Morgan or these other big companies is getting three million. Okay, so in the next year, you know, the chief financial officer gets two million, maybe one and a half, who knows? There aren't gonna be a lot of other people getting over a million. So you you've you've affected the whole pay structure. And what Binomics is about is going, okay, these people have made out like bandits. Uh, we're not, you know, we're not going to put them in jail. We're not going to take away all their money. But we're going to try and structure the economy so that people who are at the middle, people at the bottom, benefit. And thus far, it's been incredibly successful. I think more. I think if if I just wrote down the data that we have today in terms of what the unemployment rate is, what wage growth has been, adjusting for prices, adjusting for inflation. And who's benefited that the best wage growth has been at the bottom, the record low black unemployment rate? I think people have said I was nuts. I mean, it just, it just, and I wouldn't have written down because I would have, I would, I myself would have thought it was nuts. Like, yeah, you can't have that, you know, that, that, that's, you know, like a dream. And, you know, which again, I understand because I, I write, I'm on Twitter and people go, oh, you know, I can't pay my, my grocery bill. And I can't, I understand that. I mean, one of the points that I make to my friends on Twitter, I go, Look, I know we have 20% of our population that's either in poverty or close enough that they could see the poverty line. So 20, 20% is, you know, we're talking about 65, 65 million, 70 million people. And let's say that all of them, let's say we snapped our fingers and gave all of them a 10% increase in their income. They're still struggling. I understand that. But the idea that we're, we're going to have some... You know, someone come in the White House and two years later, two and a half years later, everything's going to be great. I wish I could say that, but that's not that's not real world. But what we've accomplished in the last two and a half years really has been incredibly impressive. Um, tucked inside a bill that I think no one but you saw was a provision to study changes in drug company patent monopolies. And that's something you've taught me about here on this show. I think it's worth uh, uh, telling people again and what that might mean um, and and where it is in the legislative uh, 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 process. Yeah, so the issue here first with patent monopolies with prescription <laughs> drug, we rely on, uh, on patent monopolies. They're, they're 
a grant of a uh, government grant of monopoly to, to drug companies to, to give them an incentive to innovate because the idea is that if a drug company develops a great new drug for treating cancer or AIDS or heart disease, whatever it might be, if anyone else could produce it the same day, they won't make very much money on it. They'll, everything will be sold as a generic. They'll make a profit. They'll make a profit on their, their sales, but it won't be able to recover their research costs. So the argument is, okay, we're going to give them a monopoly for, for 20 years, and then they could charge very high prices, cover their research costs. Now, to my view, that's absolutely crazy for a number of different reasons. First and foremost, the obvious one, that we have drugs that are selling for thousands of dollars when if they didn't have the monopoly, they'd sell for 10 bucks, 20 bucks. It's very rare that it's expensive to manufacture and distribute a drug. So if you just say it's a generic, everyone's out there doing it, it's going to be relatively cheap. So we make drugs that people need for their health, they need for their life. We make them incredibly expensive. And even if you have insurance, the people in this situation, even if you have insurance, the insurance company's not happy about paying thousands of dollars. They're going to say, oh, go back to the doctor and say this other, will this other medication work? Go see a second doctor. You don't want to do that, particularly since the reason you need the drug is you're in bad health. So that's really crazy. But that's only the beginning of it because when you do something like this, you're selling a drug for 2000 bucks, cost you 10 bucks to produce. Well, you got an incentive to push it as widely as possible. And drug companies do that all the time. They're misleading about the safety of their drug, the effectiveness of their drug. They game this system a thousand different ways. I just read a piece in the New York Times this morning that Gilead, the big, a big drug manufacturer, they had a, a HIV drug, Trivalo, was a big seller for them. And they were doing research and they found they could do a variation on it that was less harmful because Trivalda has side effects. People often get liver damage from it. So they found out they could do this other variation on it that didn't have the harmful side effects, but they decided, well, we're going to delay that because we, we're, our patent for Trivalda runs till 217. So we're going to delay this, introduce it to the market just before the patent on Trivalda runs out, and then we'll be able to have the patent until I think it's 231 on the new drug. That's the incentive you give them. So there's a lot of that could go on. There are many, many different ways in which you give perverse incentives with these patent monopolies. So what I and others have argued is that we should look to have an alternative mechanism. And the most obvious to me is just what we did with, with uh, the Moderna vaccine, the Moderna COVID vaccine. We paid them to do it. We just said, you know, you, you have the technology, you have the expertise. Here's a billion dollars. We paid them a little less than that to develop a COVID vaccine and test it and show that it was safe and effective. And then we had the FDA, the FDA approved it. And great. You know, tens of millions of people, I got it, you know, it protected us from, from COVID. Now, the unfortunate thing was we still let them get control of the, the, the vaccine. We paid them up front and we still let them get control. And we got five Moderna billionaires in a year. But then aside, you could pay companies up front. And, and, you know, again, we could talk about other mechanisms that we could use to finance research. But the big thing here is that we now have a bill that's likely to pass in Congress. It's an amendment proposed by Bernie Sanders, who's now the head of the Help Committee. He got uh, Bill Cassidy, who's the ranking member, to sign on. They're both on board with this. And there's this amendment that would call for the government to finance a study looking at alternatives to patent monopolies for financing prescription drug research. So to my view, that's a huge foot in the door. Now, there's no guarantees. Studies in Washington, I've seen this before. You could rig them. You could have, they could put, uh, they could put economists, uh, policy experts that are all working for the pharmaceutical industry as the people who do the study. 
I don't rule that out. But, you know, getting that into law, that was a really big deal. And it's all but certain it, it, it's attached, an amendment attached to the um, ex, um, extension of the pandemic uh, preparedness bill, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. almost a sure pass. So it's very likely to get into law. And then the big question would be, can we make sure that it's an honest study where they really do take a serious look at alternatives? Yeah, well, it's a big step. And I know it's one that you have advocated for a very long time. So congratulations, Dean. Well, thanks. Thanks. It's it's always good to say it's, you know, nothing's on the table yet, but uh, it, it does look like a big step forward. Yep. All right. Let's... Um uh, we have um, an interesting thing going on with the UAW, the United Auto Workers. You know, they, they're not uh, sure what they're going to do, who they're going to endorse. In part, they're concerned, even though uh, union jobs, union auto jobs are growing in Michigan, they're looking at green energy and they're seeing um, uh battery plants built in Georgia and Georgia's, you know, they haven't organized in Georgia. So they're worried that cars are going to be built with lots of non-union parts. And that would be a big change. Uh, You know, it's, uh, I think Joe Biden just said to him, go organize the plants in Georgia. It's kind of their job to do, not his, but um, it it is interesting that the, that these bills, um, primarily, really, I mean, the biggest winners have been states like Georgia. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's interesting how this breaks down. Uh, Biden did try to get in the bill. This was in the Inflation Reduction Act. He tried to get wording in the bill that would allow him to give preference to union firms. Like they could say that, you know, okay, you know, here are two contracts. One is for a union outfit, the other one is they're not going to have a union. Otherwise, they're comparable. I get to do the and he, he couldn't get that through. Mansion in particular was jumping up and down, yelling and screaming, "No, no, no, we can't do that." And you know, as you know, he needs every vote. He doesn't. He can't play around. So Mansion was no. I believe cinema. Anyhow, he didn't have the votes for that. So they couldn't get explicit preference for for unions uh, for for companies that had unions or were union friendly. Because uh, another issue is even if you don't actually have a union, you could say okay, if the workers want a union, if they sign cards, so say cards that the the a majority of the workers sign cards saying they want a union, they'll they, they'll accept that. Because that is one way workers can organize. Um, the other way, of course, is through a NLRB election, but that's much more time-consuming, and it's much harder for unions to win that because companies tend to do play games, do all sorts of tricks. Anyhow, the story, obviously, a lot of uh, jobs are going to Georgia, going to other states where you have very low unionization rates. You're still seeing more jobs in Michigan, more jobs in the Midwest than we would have had if you didn't have the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, the way I would put it, I know plenty of people in unions go, look, I mean, I know what I want. I know what you want. I'd love to see all the money go, all the jobs be union jobs. That wasn't a possibility. But are we better off in the situation where the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the jobs are going to go to Georgia? Some of those jobs are going to go to other non-union states. But some of those jobs are going to Michigan. We could see that. It's not like you have to go, oh, well, look, here's a job. No, they're building factories in Michigan. So so it's, again, it could have been better. And I wish it was better. Biden tried to make it better. 
But the point is, he's creating more jobs, and a lot of those are union jobs. And again, that's a much better story than if you didn't have the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, much better. Much, much better. Um, The writers are on strike. The actors are on strike. I think the guy with the 60 million was Bob Iger, who's out saying we can't afford to pay writers. Um, it's I, a, I believe uh, you're right. I didn't want to say that because I didn't want to be wrong, but I think that's correct. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. it's an interesting, yeah. you know, I mean, my, my brother's a writer and, you know, the, the they're really concerned about um, uh, about the profession and the art and, um, you know, they don't want to be. Uh, 19, you know, 20s factory workers, um, each doing a piece of a script. They don't think that leads to good stories. And they also want to share in some of the streaming profits. But I think the, the, uh, owners and the, and management says, Ooh, the industry's changing. We can make a better deal with our workers for the benefit of the shareholders and the, uh, and the management. And I, I think this is going to be a tough one for them for, for management to get away with. As far as I can tell, the workers, the, the writers, the actors, they're pretty serious about protecting um, their work and sharing in the benefits. Yeah, the unity of the, the, the workers, the, the, well, now you have both the actors and the writers uh, on strike, that's been very impressive. And if they're going to win, it will be because that they, they've hung together. And that, that really has been extraordinary. Same time, i got to say, I, I'm not going to, I'm absolutely last on earth going to try and defend the pay that the execs are getting uh, at uh, Disney and you know, the other studios. But I, I do think there is a real concern that the industry's changing. And what I'm concerned about is, particularly with AI, that even if the the studios weren't using it, that you can't keep some someone from doing this in their basement and you know sending it out over the web and getting people to to view their product. So I do worry that that is going to be an issue. So again, I'm not defending the studios. I mean, they're they're, they're they they have to share what they've got with the writers and you know the writers demands as best i can tell are all reasonable i haven't read through everything they put on the table but yeah. uh, you know what's been publicized yeah. has been very reasonable but but i do think there are going to be some problems with ai down the road and i don't know that either of those either the studios or the actor the, the writers are in a position to deal with that yeah i agree ai is going to be trans uh, difficult for us to absorb the enormity of the change that's going to make in every industry but today and I'm only going to say it because it's everywhere. Um, I don't think AI could have written the Barbie movie or even Oppenheimer. No, no. And that's uh, <laughs> my wife and I just yeah. made plans to go and see Oppenheimer on Monday. We're really looking forward yeah. to that. And if we're yeah. done by AI, I, you know, I don't think we'd be racing down to see it. Right. Well, Dean, we got to leave it there. It's, uh, I have to take a break for the news. But as always, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Good talking to you again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Take care. We're going to take a break for the news. And when we come back, uh, uh, we're going to talk about white Christian nationalism in the Republican Party. Uh, You don't want to miss that. Stay tuned.